0: Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read just some of the opening uh, verses, please. Ephesians chapter 1 here. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Amen. Just ending at the end there of verse 14. We know the Lord himself will add his own divine blessing upon it. No doubt, if I would speak tonight just about God's grace, then it's something that you have heard me and other ministers speak about. It has been broken down by others. If you take the first letter or the letter uh, in that word, God's riches at Christ's expense. Maybe you've heard that uh, before. What effectively it means is that God does not owe us anything. But he shows amazing favor toward many who are unworthy. Many who are undeserving. And men and women, that's grace. That's grace. Most are familiar with Ephesians 2. Some of you, I'm sure if I went round the room tonight, could memorize or say off by heart verses 8 and 9. Or by grace are you saved. But understand that chapter 1 is also about God's grace. The meaning of grace is already defined for us in chapter 1 before we even get to chapter 2 because chapter 1 from the start to the finish is all about God's sovereign grace. Both chapters contain the word grace three times over. Chapter 1 looks at it from God's point of view showing that we are saved because of what God has willed. Chapter 2 is from our perspective. Showing how these decrees of God impact the individual believer. That's essentially the difference between the two chapters. Although they both speak about God's grace. The important thing to note is that Paul begins with God. And in doing so he highlights the role of each person in the Godhead in the work of our salvation. I just want to leave that little thought with you uh, even uh, tonight I want you to notice first of all, as in the order of the Trinity, God the Father. God the Father is to do with the point of election in our salvation. You look at the words of verse 4 to 6 as we've read tonight, according as he hath chosen us and you can go back because Paul's writing about blessed be the God and Father. So God the Father is in focus as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And what we have just read there, men and women, is possibly... The strongest expression of sovereign grace that is to be found in all the scriptures. For they teach that the blessings of our salvation come to some people because God has determined from before he created this world. He's determined that. And he determined to give those blessings to that people and for that reason only. What's the reason? It's according to his good pleasure. It's according to the pleasure of his will. It's according to grace. Now, we have to admit that many people do not like this truth. And many think it is unjust or unfair. Some even will deny it outrightly. Some will try and say that the choice of God was based on on his foreknowledge. As if to say that before God spake this world into being and created it, he looked down through the corridors of time and he said, well there's a good man, there's a good woman, there's a good young person, I'll choose them. That's foreknowledge. But you have to disagree with that thought because what good is in any one of us? You see Romans 3 reminds us, there is none that doeth right. There's none good, no not one. And there are other people, of course, who will ignore this truth altogether. But it's difficult to ignore election because not only is it found in these verses in this chapter, but it is found throughout the word of God and in so many important passages. And understand that without God's prior election of sinners to salvation, grace then is emptied of its meaning. Remember, it is God bestowing amazing favour toward many who are unworthy and undeserving. That's grace. But if God doesn't choose a people, doesn't elect a group of sinners to salvation, then grace doesn't mean anything. So there you have even God the Father in the aspect of it. The second one, of course, follows in the order as God the Son. But not does it bring out the aspect of election, but it brings out this time the aspect of redemption. Election is not only the thing that God has done as an expression of his grace. You come even into the next number of verses, you will see that the truth of redemption is brought out by God the Son. What God has done through Jesus Christ is to redeem that chosen people. That people that he has chosen from before the foundation of the world. And that uh, redemption flows from that unmerited or that utterly sovereign grace. Look at verse 7 and 8. In whom we have redemption through his blood. That's Christ. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. The reason that redemption is particularly associated with Jesus Christ is is because redemption in itself is a commercial term, means, and you've heard me said before to buy back. It's buying something out of the marketplace. It's buying, and of course, remember, it's in the Old Testament context. And oftentimes, the uh, landowner would go, or the master would go, and he would buy slaves out of the marketplace, and by doing so, he would be setting them free. It's buying somebody, bringing them out of the prison house, never to go back in again. That really is the meaning of redemption. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did on Calvary's cross. He purchased our salvation. He liberated, did a liberating work by dying on that cross of Calvary for us, in our place. That very aptly pictures us as prisoners or as slaves to sin. Unable to free ourselves from the bondage of sin. Unable to set us free from the grasp that this whole world has upon us. Oh, the world doesn't free us. Indeed it offers its alluring currency. What does the world offer tonight to men and women? It offers the currency of fame. Of pleasure. It offers even power and wealth. And all of the other things that you could reel off the top of your head. That's what the world's currency is. That's what it offers to men and women. But it doesn't set them free. But Christ enters into that marketplace as our redeemer. The price that he has to pay to purchase sinners in that marketplace of sin is none other than his precious blood. That's the currency he pays There's no greater better. And in buying, in redeeming that lost people, that bound people by sin, they become his possession forever. That's redemption. Peter sums it up. 1 Peter 1, of course, verse 18, For as much as you know that you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. That's not the currency which the Lord purchased us by from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish without spot that's what he had to give to purchase your soul and mine on Calvary so you see how it all flows in together God the father dealing with election has chosen people Given that people unto his Son. God the Son came that he might redeem that people. The purchase price, his own precious blood. That's why we sing, I've been redeemed. Oh praise the Lord. But we don't stop there. Because in the Trinity there's three. And of course it's God the Holy Spirit. And this part has to do with the effectual calling. It's the Holy Spirit who applies to the individual the salvation that's planned by God the Father and that it has been purchased by God the Son. You now read with me verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. That we should also be to the praise of his glory you first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed by that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Whose verses effectually, effectively are describing the effectual call of God, the Holy Spirit to individuals. That follows on from, and that is determined by, the exercise of God's sovereign choice in election. In practical terms, what is it? what is it? It's when you and I heard the gospel. But we heard the voice of the Lord. We heard God speak to us about our state. And we heard God's voice speak to us above the voice of any preacher getting occasions beforehand. There is that time when God spoke definitely and individually to your heart and to mine. That's God the Spirit effectually calling us unto himself. Maybe the greatest picture to illustrate that of the grace of God calling a dead sinner to life is in the raising of Lazarus. If you turn over to John chapter 11 you'll see what I mean. John chapter eleven will be, no doubt, a familiar enough passage for you. And the Lord arrived, and of course his delay his arrival was delayed, or it seemed to be delayed in terms of the disciples. The Lord had heard how his friend had become sick. And it says in verse six, when he had heard therefore that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. There wasn't the immediate departure. But even if he had gone, the outcome that he would have found was still the same. Because when he did arrive, we hear uh, of how Martha and the Mary are there and they indicate to the Lord that he had been dead four days and he's already stinking. In Israel, to this day, the burial takes place on the same day because of the heat. So Lazarus was already dead four days and he was already in his tomb. And men and women, you just picture that. Is that not a picture of our moral and of our spiritual state before God? There's a picture of the sinner. One who's spiritually dead. One who's stinking. Dead, decaying, stinking, hopeless. There was nothing that anyone could do for Lazarus in that dead condition. Oh, they they came to Mary and Martha. They mourned with her. They wept and cried. As we would do today. And neither could he do anything of himself either. Lazarus couldn't free himself from the tomb. There's a picture of the sinner that sits beside you or in front of you. Or the cross the aisle from you every Sabbath day. There's a picture. But of course the difference was that God can do all things. And with God all things are possible. Lazarus wasn't merely in a serious position. He wasn't merely in a grim position. It was a hopeless position. Until the Lord came. You look at verse 43. And you see what happened. It says, And when he thus had spoken, that is the Lord, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He's in that place of the dead and where the dead are buried. He cries, Lazarus, come forth. That call of Christ brought life to that dead man. Just as the voice of God spake this universe into his being in its entirety. And what do we read? Verse 44, he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was bound about with a napkin Jesus saith unto them loose him and let him go there's a picture of what God does in salvation there's a picture of the effectual call of God to your heart and mine we were dead trespasses and sin. we couldn't <coughs> save ourselves we couldn't loose ourselves from the bondage of our sin no one else could but the Lord spoke the word and we were made willing at at his power at his voice to come forth, and to call upon him for mercy. We are brought from death unto life, from the power of Satan unto God, and that is what God, the Holy Spirit, does. The sinners in the gospel. How does He do that? It's through the vehicle of the preaching of the Word, through the foolishness. Of preaching, that he calls to faith those whom he previously chose for salvation and for whom the Lord specifically died on the cross of Calvary. For who are they? That's not my business or yours. That's why I preach the gospel to everybody. To everybody. And apart from those three gracious actions of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, there will be no salvation for anyone. But because of these actions, of God's sovereign grace, even the worst of blaspheming rebels may be turned from his or her folly and find Christ as their Savior. That's grace. I've said to you it is a great word, it is a great truth that is found throughout the word and so it is. But you know, you look at the hymn book and you'll see it there many times as well. Hymns wrote based on the word, so many of them include grace, abounding grace, matchless grace, wondrous grace, marvelous grace, amazing grace. I can give you the example of Samuel Davi, Davies it's number 54 in our hymn book and it's times we sing it great God of wonders all thy ways and worthy of thyself divine but the fair glories of thy grace beyond thine other wonders shine who is a pardoning God like thee or who is grace so rich so free he was a Presbyterian minister Samuel Davies but probably the most obvious example is that of John Newton John Newton, I don't know why you've ever read anything or much about him we sing his hymn but John Newton was nurtured in the gospel but his mother died young while he was young he left that Christian home as soon as he could get away to go to Africa as a merchant marine in his own words he went there that I might sin my fill but well, there he lived a horrendous life he was befriended by a Portuguese sailor man slave trader really and took him in under his wing and that slave trader left home the home was in charge of his wife who was an African and she hated whites and she made it very clear that she hated John Newton. And so he was beaten and all the rest of it. And depraved, deprived of food etc. He eventually escaped to the coast. And there he was to be picked up by a British ship making its way up the coast to England. Near the end of that journey. This is years on of course. Disaster struck in the form of a storm. It was blown off course. It was meant to be going up the north of Scotland. Blown off course. And uh, it, water started coming in. And the ship began to sunk, began to sink. It was actually in Loch Swilly, Kearney Donegal, when this happened. Newton was put down into the hole to try and get the water out and to keep it from subsiding and sinking. And down there, Newton thought that the ship was going to be sunk and he was going to drown. But down there the God of all grace remembered John Newton. He had sought to run away. He had sought to forget all the teaching of the scriptures as a child. But God hadn't forgotten John Newton. And in the hold of that boat. The God of all grace reached down to him. And the word of God came back to his heart. What an encouragement that is to our Sunday school teachers. About to start the work of God again. Or the children's meeting workers as well. You have no knowing of how far that little text of scripture will go in a child's life. And the scriptures that he had learned as a child and been taught as a child, they suddenly flooded his heart, come back to him. And the way of God's salvation was opened up to him. He was born again and he was transformed. Many years later in England, he began to study theology. He became a preacher. First in Orlney and then in London itself. It was said that Newton was a great preacher of grace. Is it any wonder? For he had learned where sin abounded, grace doth much more abound. And he put it into words Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. It's blind, but now I see. It's one of the one of the most popular uh, songs or hymns in the entire world. and the pop culture has even embraced it and all the rest of it and these guys that know nothing of it John Newton knew all about God's grace and that's why he started it amazing grace and saved a wretch like me we can testify to that tonight as well there's just a wee side story to that I never knew but William Cowper who's another hymn writer of course and a poet he became a personal friend to Newton. He lived with him for several years. And of that storm that Newton, uh, that Newton was in, he wrote the words. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. That's how, where that come from. And there are men, there are people that are proved the grace of God is sufficient to save anyone and that he saves them by grace alone nothing in you and I but all of God's grace and that's chapter 1 of Ephesians how God before he even spake the world, that's a, a thought a mystery in itself, before he even formed the universe, he had thought upon you and I not amazing? And he chose us and he gave us to Christ. And Christ in obedience to the Father's will came when the fullness of time was come. What to do to redeem that people. To go to the cross to pay the purchase price for our redemption, even the precious blood of, the, of that lamb, without spot and without blemish. And in due time, whether it's in your life or mine or centuries ago, the Holy Spirit took that work and applied it personally to every one of, of Christ's redeemed, of Christ's chosen, of God's chosen, and He brought us unto Himself. There's the work of God, the Holy Spirit. Effectually calling us unto himself. And tonight we sit as those who have been saved uh, by God's grace. And we have that inheritance. That inheritance that we have bred about. That inheritance which is reserved for us. And we're as sure of that inheritance as if we already had it. Because you see verse 13 Tells us in whom also after that ye believe ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. You're sealed. It has the connotation behind it with a keen. When the package was going to someone else, he sealed it, or the envelope was sealed with a stamp. That's that envelope was sure. It was certain to be from the king and for to get there because of the seal of the king and we're sealed we're guaranteed by your white goods and all you have a guarantee we're guaranteed because God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise and one day we shall enter in to be glorified what a great truth I pray the Lord might encourage your heart tonight even with that great truth to you personally. I encourage you to pray. That God might reveal his grace to others. That have sat under the gospel. Even of late in the mission. May the Lord bless his word. Even tonight to each and every soul. limit.